They're testing one, two, three, four, mic check, testing. Welcome back to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel. Today is a really special episode. We've got an absolute legend, Alex Stanlake. I introduce him properly on the show, so we won't get too bogged down in that. But today we're talking all about kernels. Do you remember kernels, those things that people used to use before deep learning? Most people have forgotten all about them. Even I have, and I, I did a PhD at Royal Holloway, and Royal Holloway was on the forefront of kernels. I think we had Vladimir Vapnik was one of our distinguished professors there. Uh, I must admit, just to prepare for this episode, I had a little look at chapter six of Bishop, and it made me realize I've forgotten most stuff about kernels, or perhaps I didn't even understand half of it in the first place. But today was a really, really cool episode because Alex took us through the whole thing. We, we talk about the kernel trick, how it's used in things like kernel ridge regression and support vector machines. We go down the rabbit hole on the Mercer's theorem and the representer theorem and uh, reproducing kernel Hilbert spaces and how how kernels in general compare to modern deep learning approaches and so on. So it was an amazing episode and it was a huge honor to have Alex on the show. So I hope you enjoy it and we will see you back next week. By the way, if you haven't liked and commented and indeed subscribed to the channel, it's disappointing. See you next week. I, I find this very exciting, especially this final connection that kind of the, the data points are the model and our recognition now that we've gone away from this. We've gone to neural networks, which we fed through data and we're like, ha, we have this parametric thing right here. We don't, we can throw away the data points to, to the transformers where we know we can't just increase the parameters. We also need to increase the data, which to me is the same thing, even though it ends up being you can maybe evaluate quicker because you can just forward pass but it's i just i feel like there's a, a kind of a reconnection in in that space happening definitely and and i'm excited to see what happens in the future so yeah alex th this was great thank you very much oh jesus the glasses never come off no this is the branding man <laughs> I, I was really worried that yannick had no eyeballs or something but there, there is a video of him online uh, without the glasses because <laughs> so, otherwise I, i'm just wondering how does he even read anything yeah uh i wear my sunglasses at night etc there's a casey nice that he he does these videos where he like wakes up in the morning and he has his blanket over his head and then he's like alarm sounds and he goes like and he, st he already has the sunglasses on <laughs> now what i've actually done is i've got a second piece to camera yeah you see this is for the intro do you like that yeah. nice yeah i don't fuck about <laughs> we, do, we do things properly here on street talk only <laughs> <laughs> Today, we have an incredibly special guest. He's so incredibly special, I forgot to introduce Yannick Lightspeed Kilcher beforehand. And it's best I do that beforehand because I've got a bit of a preamble to go through here. But Alex Stenlake, he loves solving data puzzles and working on statistical analysis and machine learning and time series. And he's got a passion for causal inference and also for Bayesian modeling and graphs. So a super cool guy. He's got an interesting background. So he started out in the army 
And then he went on to get a first class degree in international uh, relations and political science from the University of Queensland, where he implemented data driven causal models of genocide using Bayesian networks. He's the co-organizer of the Queensland AI Society with over 3,000 members and lots of regular events. He was a senior research data analyst at the University of Queensland for a year, specializing in bioinformatics. He was doing research in the university sector for a while, and then he pivoted into the startup scene. So he was the head of analytics at Canaria, working on things like signal processing and machine learning models and BI and data architecture. And now he's pivoted towards China. He just decided randomly to go to China just as uh, Australia went into the lockdown. He's learning uh, Chinese like a man possessed. He's already done a stint at Accenture. And when he's not solving data puzzles, he's climbing mountains. And, and that's not a euphemism for adaptive gradient methods, by the way. He reached out to us when Yannick did a really cool video on applying kernels to transformers. And uh, Alex um, picked Yannick up on, on loads of bits and pieces. And basically, we just decided it would be a cool show for us to do. And anyway, Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you can be honest. I just screwed up all the kernel talk. That's, oh, I mean, <laughs> that's how this happened. <laughs> the, 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 kernels, the kernel thing is, though, like everyone screws them up and they're yeah. super simple. And that's why I was like, oh, come on, like we, we can get this right. And it's, it's not anyone's fault. It's just, I, I think they're kind of taught badly or explained badly on the internet. So I'm going to add my own bad explanation today and, and see how terribly I can explain it. I think this, especially now in the, I, I feel we we're at a transition where academia is still in this. So there's this path of machine learning that you go through, starting with whatever regression and whatnot, and through one way or the other, you go to you get to to kernels. Usually, you want to you have your linear classifier and your support vector machine and and so on. And it seems like that's that's this chapter. And it used to be the thing to do in classification. It used to be we have these SVMs and they perform super well. And that might still be in you know industry, but in academia, then it's like chapter close. Now we go to neural networks. And all the hype today is neural net, I've, at least from my perspective in academia, is like neural networks. And so kernels becomes this thing that most of us have seen at some point, uh, but, you know, we forget. A hundred percent. Like I, I started learning straight into deep learning. I was very lucky and oh, I had an intellectual curiosity about like how this developed. And between like kernel methods and deep learning, there was a period where random forests were just like everything. Oh yeah. Even things like the Connect is powered by a random forest because that was the most powerful model that you know was practical at the time. But at, at the same time, I was hanging out with a lot of mathematicians, and they love their kernels. They absolutely love them. And I'm I knew nothing about maths at the time. I basically self-taught through asking them a lot of stupid questions. And through their patience, I remember there was one day I was, I was just sitting there. I'm like, oh. I get this. Uh, we're actually running through Bishop. Anyone out there that's interested in machine learning, Bishop's still like a really good reference for you know, getting a good overall picture of the theory that underpins us all. And so we're in this lecture, postdocs and uh, lecturers, professors. And I'm just asking these questions. And a lot of my friends from the math school, they're like, oh, he's all right, but his math isn't very good. And this day they're like, holy hell, he's, he's understanding this. The boy's learning. <laughs> So yeah, so this this is ex extremely appreciated because I, yeah, I think it's just this thing that the community has forgotten. It pops out here and there every now and then in, in transformers here and 
people are trying to apply it. So what do you think is the biggest, like the, the flaw that people do when teaching kernels? Where do you think it comes from or what could be done better? Okay, so to jump in a way, I think the biggest problem is that we don't think in terms of statistical learning theory anymore. We think in terms of engineering, like we know we need a loss function, we need some data source, we need some differentiable function and away we go. The rest is engineering. Whereas the kernel methods come from a time where we didn't really have cloud compute. Um, computers were still pretty slow and very memory limited. Doing any kind of learning whatsoever was a challenge. And so you didn't mess around with something that you weren't relatively sure would work. And so people spent a lot of time thinking these problems through and ensuring they were properly um, defined and that it would converge to something useful. And of course, you know, they weren't just doing throwing SGD at everything. They were using closed form, uh, sorry, not closed form, um, convex optimizers quadratic optimizes linear programming. And that, that was the mindset at the time. And I, I guess at the same time, like there, there was this earlier wave of neural networks that had just gone out of fashion and, and it was deemed that that's not the approach. No, we need to move back to a more theoretically grounded approach. And so the mathematicians came out and there were gains, there were huge gains and, and some really cool theorems that come out of that time, like the no free lunch theorem, et cetera. Weirdly, neural networks are more computationally tractable than something. SVMs don't have a closed form solution. They're those horrible yeah. Lagrange multipliers and yeah. you have to use a, a, a quadratic programming tool in MATLAB probably. And it's very problematic as well. So sometimes you have to adjust the bounds and the parameters to make mm. it work. And if you can get it to work on, on over 5,000 examples, you're doing well. And, I mean, and there were there were heuristics, weren't there, to break it yeah. up and then take the union over the solutions. But ridge regression was different because you could solve a linear system and you didn't need to compute the inverse directly. Yeah, and well, a I guess solution isn't there. Yeah, with ridge regression, there is a closed form solution, and SVMs are different. But that's mainly because the optimization problem is different. If you were to do like SVM regression, it's basically the same thing. And it, it's really down to it's really down to the the objective that we're optimizing. I believe, like I'm no expert on SVMs themselves, but I'm pretty sure it's hinge loss that really throws up the problems rather than doing the kernel regression itself. Because you know, ridge regression, ridge regression in the dual format is regression. Spoiler warning. We'll uh, we'll work through that later. Um, how we actually get there. But if anyone out there is intimidated by the maths of this sort of stuff, I I, I think let's put a bit of a warning here. We initially discussed how to strip the maths out of this as much as we could, how to just talk about the intuition and how to, how to think about this particular problem. The, uh, the problem is the more I thought about this, the more I dug into the field and, okay, how do I explain this properly and, and leave no loose ends, the more I realized there's some level of mathematical abstraction that's necessary. But uh, that being said, we're not going to do anything rigorous. We're going to hand wave a lot. We're going to say, oh, it's a lot like this thing here. And this is going to make the maths people rage. To, it, to whom I say, go read a book. You already, you should already know this stuff. It should already be straightforward. Stop bother, bothering the rest of us. And so, yeah, the uh, as we build up to this stuff, we're gonna. We're, the spoiler warning is, we're gonna be doing linear regression. In the, in the end, it's gonna look exactly like linear regression. You can solve it like you would literally a linear model in PyTorch. The only difference is we're gonna be doing it with this crazy mathematical space in the background that allows us to do nonlinear stuff. In, a, in, in something that, that comes out to solving a, for a bunch of coefficients. But how to get there is kind of challenging and disambiguating, like, what is a kernel? Why does it have all these crazy infinite dimensions? How does all that stuff work? That's the challenge. Why don't we start with what is a kernel? 
Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll outline briefly where we're going to go just for the sake of everyone. So they've got a, a clear picture. Okay. We're going to start with this question of what is a kernel? Then from there, we're going to move on to probably the densest part mathematically, which is what's a reproducing kernel Hilbert space. And that's a mouthful. There's a lot more mouthfuls in there, but that'll give us everything that we need to understand the final part, the, the magic of kernel methods, which is the representer theorem. And once we have the representer theorem in hand, everything kind of snaps into focus. With what is a kernel? Let's start by talking about what it's not, because a kernel in kernel methods is not necessarily a mathematical kernel. So when people are talking about kernel, like this is one of the first horrible things about kernel methods. The word kernel is horribly confused with a lot of concepts. I remember when I was first looking into this stuff, I'm like, oh, does this have anything to do with the kernel of an OS or your Jupyter kernel? No, not as far as I can tell. CNN one as well, you know, well, convolution one. That's actually closer to the sort of kernel that we're going to be talking about. But in between that, a matrix kernel. What's a matrix kernel? A matrix kernel is like a zero function for a matrix space. And actually, the definition of what is just a kernel, if you say, ask a mathematician, what's the kernel? They're going to say, oh, it's the, a generalization of the zero function. And the matrix kernel, it acts like the zero. It's also known as the null space or the kernel of the matrix. But in kernel methods, there's also the kernel matrix. And the kernel matrix is not the matrix kernel. It is not the kernel of the matrix. So you'll see, um, you'll see matrix kernel come up. No, that's nothing to do with kernel methods. That's like straight up. linear generalization of non-negative or uh, strictly positive numbers. To kind of give a concrete example of what that means, it's like a, a matrix where all the eigenvalues are positive or at least non-zero, right? So it's it, otherwise, how can you say a matrix is greater than, equal, uh, greater than or equal to zero? So, okay, we have to define something and that's called our, our positive semi-definite uh, matrix. You were saying the properties of kernels are they need to be positive semi-definite. Right. No, no, not, not where, where the kernels we're going to be talking about are positive semi-definite kernels. Mm -hmm. um, oh, apologies. Is, is it not? Because um, I think there is a Mercer theorem thing, right? Which says, yeah, yeah, yeah. so there has to be symmetric, has to be positive semi-definite. Yeah. And, and that's when you have any vector and you have a, a sleeping version and a, and a standing version. You multiply yeah. them all together and all the values have to be greater than zero. Sleeping and standing. I love it. Yeah, ba like that. <laughs> basically, that's what we're talking about here. Okay. It's, it's this idea that positive numbers or positive things don't just have to be numbers. That we can define other things to be positive. So, OK, we've, we've got this positive object, this positive function. Some, some examples of things that work like this are your CNN filters, your discrete signal uh, signal processing filters, your window functions for like uh, rolling means and stuff in, in pandas, implicit surfaces defined by distance in point set in point cloud calculations, density estimators and integrators, right? Like th there's a huge, these positive definite functions, these positive definite kernels, these are all called kernels. Oh, um, covariance matrices and covariance functions from statistics, right? These show up everywhere, but we're going to be talking about a very specific form of them. For the same so when you so, when you talk about just, CNN CNN filters, they're not like the matrix as such is not necessarily positive semi definite. No, no, no. Right? But the function mm -hmm. is positive semi definite in an abstract sense. Okay. Yeah, and that's the trick here. The the kernels can be far more general than just the kernels used in kernel methods. But thankfully, we only need to worry about a very simple class of them. And uh, when we're talking about kernel functions, 
basically think about distance functions. Think mm -hmm. about functions that are symmetric, right? Order of arguments doesn't matter. They're generally they're generally positive definite, strictly positive definite. But for statistics and for machine learning, we can generalize them to positive semi-definite, which means x uh, your, sorry your function equals zero only when x equals y. And if you just think about them like a similarity measure or a distance function, you're done, right? That's all the intuition you need to, to move forward here. I think as well as the, the symmetry and the positive semi-definite thing, to be a, there are some rules to be a valid kernel. Yes. And I think the, the, the most important rule is that there is a latent space. And in that latent space, it has to represent an inner product. And that's actually not true for many high level transformation. So for example, there's the polynomial kernel. Well, which... for, a, for a reproducing kernel, that needs to be the case. Uh, but for a general kernel, kernels are more general than that. And to get to the reproducing kernel, we need to start defining what the function space and stuff like that is. So and it, it's, it, this is structuring it like this. It's, it sounds dumb. It really does being so pedantic over the meaning of words, but it real like when you go back and you start reading things, reading texts that start to pull this theory apart for yourself, it makes it helps a lot to keep these ideas separate in your head just for the sake of for your own for the sake of your own sanity so that when you see people referring to kernels in a way that doesn't quite make sense you can say okay well what are they actually talking about here because there are many ways to split this particular idea and implement this particular idea right oh we mentioned earlier the kernel matrix that's not the matrix kernel when we're talking about the the kernel matrix here we're just going to be talking about pairwise distances of all data points in a data set right? That's our definitions done. We have our kernel function. We know what they're not. We have our kernel matrix. We have basically every tool we need to start moving forward through the abstract stuff with some language that's going to help us here. So the kernel matrix is just a uh, kernel matrix. The entry IJ is simply the kernel function applied to data point I and data point J. Yes. But what is our kernel function? Well, that depends. A good example of a kernel matrix here would be like a gram matrix where we just take the inner product of everything that's a valid kernel matrix that if you're struggling to to move forward in this i'm assuming all your listeners know about it, know how to do basic deep learning stuff and so they'll they'll know what an inner product is and they can imagine a matrix full of inner products if you're ever but, stuck just think in your head where we're talking about in a matrix full of inner products but on Yannick's point, though, so in the product matrix is where, you, let's say, you, you have a whole bunch of examples and, and you take the dot product between all of them and you end up with an N by N matrix, but you haven't done any transformation. But, but Yannick was saying what you could do is, is you could have a feature transformation first on all of the pairs of examples. And then yep. that could be represented in, in this uh, kernel matrix. But what the yep. kernel matrix gives you is you don't have to explicitly compute that feature transformation. So you do it, you do this kernel function and the kernel functions seem to be, there's not many you can do. They seem to be, either, I think, sigmoids or polynomials. Or, and you have like homogenous ones, which are only a function of the distance between the examples. And you have ones which are some kind of transformation. But, but my point is that the actual kernel functions themselves are, are typically quite simple. Yeah. And this is the trick, right? Like the whole reason this field works is because we find ways of not having to calculate those feature maps. And uh, to do those big inner products, we can just do pointwise, sort of like pairwise evaluation on all the elements of two vectors, throw that into a matrix and we're done. And that's like the beauty here. But one other weird thing, because we talked about all the things that make a valid kernel, mm -hmm. but with the radial basis function, for example, I think it's a kind of Taylor series expansion. So it's actually yep. the inner product is, is, in, is infinite. Yes. 
But yep. the only reason why that works is because it decays very quickly. So if it didn't if, if it didn't converge to zero on that um, series expansion, then it would be a crappy curve because if you add it all up, it, it, it just wouldn't be useful. I think there's one, it might be the Matern kernel or something like that, which does have, it, it's vaguely Taylor series -y. It doesn't drop off quite so fast, but it is very big and it seems to work fairly well for certain classes of problems on like nowhere differentiable functions. But like uh, uh, the, the actual applications of this, like realistically you use RBF for everything. It's the theory that underpins these things that are interesting and the way they keep showing up in different domains. But does that uh, indicate though, that even though it's technically an infinite dimensional space, because it decays so quickly, it's only really the first few that are important. Imagine you're doing a, a polynomial kernel on like fifth order polynomials or something like that, and you've got a hundred input variables. That's a very big calculation. And if you can reduce that to like an element-wise operation, an element-wise operation and an aggregation, then you're already doing pretty well. And I, I, that's really where the, the magic comes from, the fact that you can get away with these ridiculous, these ridiculous re reductions on that full feature map expansion. So I uh, just... I think we're jumping like uh, mm. 10, 15 minutes ahead. Yes. <laughs> but it's a, good, it's a good point to just go, okay, what does it... So now we have kernel functions and the kernel matrix. And let's say we want to explicitly build that kernel matrix in... And, and let's just make an example. Let's take a polynomial degree three, whatever. And that's going to be our kernel function. How... So now I have my polynomial, right? Uh, mm. And... I have my data points, what do I do with them? There's kind of two ways you could go about this. You can calculate the full polynomial expansion, right? Which makes your matrix like much bigger Then you calculate the inner product, or you get your kernel function and you whack in your original vectors and calculate just on that original vector, which is much smaller, and then put that element into the, the kernel matrix. So you end up with the- Yeah, what, what yeah. I would do is I take my data point, which has maybe, let's say, I don't know how many does the data point need to have as many features as I have polynomial entries? No, this is no. completely independent. All right, so yeah. I have my data point and I just enter every single dimension of my data point through this and expand it into the polynomial. So I do this many x squared, this many x cubed. So I end up with like number of features times number of coefficients. You'd end up for one data point, you'd end up number of features times number of dimensions in your polynomial entries, numbers, right? If you're calculating it the, the way you think fe feature maps. And, and then I basically, exactly, I'll ravel all of this and then I take the inner product of that with another data point to which I do the same thing and that'll give me one entry in this matrix at ij if I take yes. data points up. Okay, so that's or or you just use the kernel function yeah. and you get the same answer but much quicker. Yeah, exactly. But you never do the full expansion because mm -hmm. the, the one of the things is you may not be able to do that calculation. It's easy yeah. with polynomials. Polynomials are great. RBF, you're not going to be able to do that full expansion. Yeah. And even though it decays, you still technically need it for for this to for the results to hold. And so yeah, it's so the kernel function for the polynomial. How would that look like if I did this again? I have data points i and j. I want the this entry with the polynomial. I don't remember right? that. Okay. I don't remember that. So it's a different function. You, That's important, yeah, right? Yeah, it's, a, you, it's yeah. some other function. You can get to it by somehow modifying this polynomial, 
And you can say here, just put the two data points through this yes. function and then you'll get the same number. Yes. So, so yeah, okay. quick question, why is this not overfitting suicide? Okay, there are a couple of good reasons for that. Oh, man, we're going through this talk backwards. Um, <laughs> sorry. The, uh, the part of the reason it's not overfitting city is because we're suddenly not regressing on the number of um, variables, we're regressing on the number of data points. Right, so we end up with this great big square matrix, which we're going to end up doing linear regression on, and that's how we end up solving this problem. Um, but, but sorry, just to challenge that though, are we not effectively transforming it into a latent space, which is ridiculously highly dimensional? Yes. And typically, we we seem to be using like linear methods in that latent space. All of these dimensions, they are very much dependent on each other. And and furthermore, we're only evaluating at the number of da uh, data points that we have. Actually, let's pivot into the theory. Let's talk about Hilbert spaces yeah. for a bit. So for, for anyone out there that doesn't know what a Hilbert space is, these are just, they're just basically vector spaces like Rn that you're really comfortable with. We don't need to worry too much about the, the details of how they work. The real trick is Rn's basis vectors are these like orthogonal unit vectors that live at the heart of the space, right? At the origin. And we take linear combinations of these to build other vectors. With Hilbert spaces, we can use more general objects as our bases, for example, sine functions or the components of a polynomial. And that's the real, the, there's only kind of two conditions that need to hold here. The vector space needs to be linear, so additivity and commutative, commutivity, et cetera, and it needs to have a scalar in a product. As long as these two things hold, these two kind of very general notions, we can define the bases to be all kinds of crazy objects. And these spaces are big. Right, like they can be made to be much bigger than Rn, even if we set n to infinity. Just imagine the space of all polynomials with uh, with real valued coefficients. That's already like a bigger space than we'd expect from like integer valued coefficients, which like isomorphic. Well, is it isomorphic? Yeah, it'd probably be isomorphic to Rn. Don't quote me on that. But but the real trick to these spaces is we can start to use our nice geometric intuitions everyone knows how well maybe not everyone knows how vectors transform but most people that would be watching this show would be fairly comfortable with how a vector transforms and we can use all those intuitions except now we're reasoning with like functions or you know, sinusoidal bases or fourier bases or something like that if we just understand a hilbert space as this very general playground to start setting up problems then that's the first step from there we can get a reproducing kernel Hilbert space by adding a reproducing kernel. All right, cool. What's a reproducing kernel? One of the, one of the things I found when I, was going, when I was doing the prep for this, I found a definition of a reproducing kernel Hilbert space that basically said, oh, it's a kernel, uh, Hilbert space of functions that has a reproducing kernel. And I thought, oh, this is the most useless definition I've ever found. But, but have you ever heard how they define a tensor? A tensor is defined as an object that transforms like a tensor. Wow. <laughs> oh my God, that, that, that's improvement. Yeah, at least we know we're dealing with functions. We've got one additional bit of information. And so there's a better definition for how we get these spaces. And, and this is all building up to how this stuff maps down. When we're talking about the, the reproducing kernel Hilbert space, we can also think of it as a space of functions where the point evaluation functional, we'll get to that, is linear and continuous. All right, a functional is just a function that takes in a function and, and returns another function. So you can think of you know, the derivative operator as a functional. But what's the evaluation functional? All right, so we've got a space of functions, and ideally we'd like to know how these functions 
if we pass an argument into these functions, how they work. But our functions aren't defined on a space yet. Basically, what the evaluation function uh, evaluation functional lets us do is transform f or g or h to f of x or g of x or h of x. Like it, it gives us an argument. If we think about our polynomial space, let's just take a two-dimensional space where this axis here is our um, x vector and this is our x squared, except we don't have x yet because we haven't hit it, we haven't defined it on a space. The point one one would be something squared, or the function of something is equal to something squared plus something, right? So then we hit it with the evaluation functional at x and we get f of x is equal to x squared plus x. Evaluation functional of y is is f of y is equal to y squared, et cetera, throw in two and we get six because we can actually reduce that to a single variable at that point or a single number. So if, if you can get, if you can grasp that what this thing is, is it's a function that kind of allows us to go through this space of functions and figure out what it'll evaluate to at a single point, then what the meaning of it being linear and continuous kind of makes it, it just jumps out at you. It means as we evaluate, like let's fix x to be two, as we sweep it through the space, it's gonna, it's gonna give us smooth answers. And the, the consequence of this is that if we are, um, if we are doing, if we are converging in the function space as we're searching through it for our optimal classifying function or something like that, it means that the outputs will be converging themselves. Now the, the opposite isn't true, but it basically means as we search through this space, we're gonna be getting better and better answers. And it just guarantees a certain niceness for looking for functions. Even though the functions themselves may be horrible, the evaluation functional itself is nice and smooth. So we can... um, just to be like the, the space of functions that mm. we're, we're talking about, that's not the Hilbert space. Right now we're separating. We're in a Hilbert space, yeah. a Hilbert space where the basis is defined by functions. Okay. And we're, we're now trying to see if there's a reproducing kernel. And like, okay. spo spoiler, most reproducing, uh, most Hilbert spaces do, ha do have a reproducing kernel. You can construct okay. ones that don't, but uh, most of them work like this. This is a, a, a relatively fundamental thing. It's going to sound like, yeah, of course it's got to be like that. How could it be any other way? But it, it actually doesn't. Like equivalence classes of functions, for example, they don't have a reproducing kernel. So um, just on that, with, is, is, is there an equivalence to deep learning here? In, in, yeah. in a sense, because you know, one of the things about deep learning is that it's this continuous geometric uh, morphing from from one manifold to another manifold, and this is a, a similar idea. But instead of being in a geometric space, if you have basis functions in this Hilbert space, you can continuously yeah. go from one function to another. Yeah, one way of thinking about a neural network that uh, should be fairly helpful is if you just set all the bases to be all the parameters of a neural network, and as uh, RD is a Hilbert space. But you'd need to then account for like the layering effects. So some of the bases would include the outputs of other areas of the space, so they wouldn't be independent. But yeah, the, the big reason that the that there's a similarity here is it turns out that if you want to go looking for functions like weird nonlinear functions, not having big jumps or discontinuities in your space is very handy. Yeah. You know, you don't want surprises in there. So, and, so I'm imagining like just to clarify this because i'm imagining a picture here where on one hand i have my let's say i have rd like yep. r to the three with just the numbers in it and a function on that space would simply map every single point to an output yeah right? it's like okay how how warm is it in every piece of my room okay so every single point has a number cool 
and then I'm imagining this other space, the space of functions that somehow there's just like this cloud of functions and I can pick one of those functions and I can apply to this to my room and that function will try to tell me how warm it is. Now it might yep. not be correct, right? Every yes. possible function here, but I'm trying to find the best. That's what I'm doing with machine learning. I'm trying to find in this cloud of functions the best function to apply over here to tell me what the actual temperature in the room is closest to what it really is. Yes. And the, the evaluation functional is the thing that picks a function and applies it right here. And we want that this evaluation functional is continuous and linear. Yes. No? Yes. Yep, okay. Perfect. So, so basically we, but the evaluation function is just the thing that picks and puts. So we can also imagine that the space over here somehow hmm. is such that functions that are next to each other only vary like a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's why we're constructing it this way. Um, and why did I go on about the evaluation functional? Like, couldn't we just say, oh, the functions do this? Well, it turns out if you use the evaluation functional, you can construct a thing called a reproducing kernel. And to get there, we're going to take the inner product of two very special functions. Because it turns out, let's fix the reproducing kernel. Let's say it's, it, it evaluates at the point X. It turns out that all these reproducing kernel Hilbert spaces will have a special function somewhere in their space, like within the space, that if you take any other function in the space and take the inner product of those two functions, and this special function will be defined for x, you take the inner product, and it's the same as hitting hitting the, the any function you choose with the evaluation functional. So you can turn the evaluation functional into an inner product. And this is important because you can get two of those special functions and take the inner product of those two functions and end up with a special function that behaves as if it behaves as if it is the inner product of uh, arbitrary functions within the space. If we asserted that the latent space needs to be an inner product, is that basically what you just said? Because it is an inner product, because it's a Hilbert space, it's in, endowed with a scalar inner product. So um, it has to be an inner product. Yeah, we, we use the fact that it's an inner product to find a function that um, behaves like uh behaves like evaluating a function uh, another function in the space we have our evaluation function and let's call our new function what a right and we have our evaluation functional at x and our a at x then you pick any f in the space and that gives you the same answer as e of f which gives you essentially like f of x right now you take two of these functions, these special functions, defined at uh, x and say y, and put them together. And it's the same as taking the inner product of the functions in that space evaluated at that point, at points x and y. And you can construct them in such a way using, uh, again, using positive semi-definiteness. And this new special function is the same as taking the inner products in the space. Isn't that the same as what we were saying in general then? So there is an evaluation function, which is our kernel function. And then in this well, Hilbert space, we design it so that it's the same as the inner product of this function in the Hilbert space. Kind of, yeah, except the evaluation functions for a point. And now we've got one that can do it with the inner product between two, between two functions. And often there are efficiencies in setting it up in a certain way. So if uh, what, like going back to at the beginning, you said, if you take 
two the inner product of two functions in this yep. function space. So is there any special notion to this or is that just a mathematician sitting there and saying, well, it's a Hilbert space, so it has an inner product? Or how can we imagine how can we uh, imagine the inner product between two functions in that space? Two functions in that space, the same. Imagine we're going is to it deal because, with because because we set up the function space, it has basis vectors, right? So in well, in no, they're not basis vectors, they're basis uh, sorry, functions. Basis functions. Yeah. So it has some kind of it has some kind of bases. Yeah. And every function in that space can be expressed in terms of these bases. Yeah. So if it's so it's not the space of any arbitrary function, but it could be the space of any functions can like the space of polynomials becomes we can represent them with nice bases, base yeah. polynomials or base monomials. Yeah. And or it can be the space i well let's leave the gaussians out for now because yeah. that's going to be what whatever <laughs> gets us to this infinite dimensions right because it, it has infinite but and then the inner product is simply i de decompose the two polynomials each into their bases into their coefficients and then i take the inner product between those coefficient vectors and that's going to get me a new polynomial yes yeah. right and that's somewhere that, in that space. Okay. That's the right way to think about this. Mm -hmm. um, there was someone, I think it might have been Gilbert Strang, but don't, like, I, I don't know who said anything, but someone once said, all of maths is a quest to reduce um, any problem to the axioms of linear algebra. And that's yeah. essentially what we've done. Like, how do we compose functions? Yeah. We do it with linear algebra. And now no, we can I was, use... I was slightly wrong. It doesn't give you a new polynomial. It will actually give you just the number that's the inner product of these two coefficient vectors no you'll get a new function you'll get a new get function a new, okay yeah because if we reduce it to a vector form right, all the numbers yeah. in the vector have changed so therefore we have a new polynomial but so, if it's of the same degree the, but the inner product wouldn't that inner product multiply all the coefficients and then sum it together yeah. ah good no good it, point it's also called a scalar product yes except uh they i think in this particular case uh, because the the arguments to these functions aren't of the same order, it doesn't collapse. But I, I could be completely foolish there. Okay, but that was so I I can imagine what it means to take the inner product of two of these functions, mm. and then where do we go from there? You said there was a special function somewhere, yep. one or two. There are two special. Uh, or there are many. For, for each evaluation point there is one and only one unique function okay. in the space so we're we're talking about one particular place in my room yep. like the temperature of that particular place there is one function in the function space such that what such that all of the potential functions in the sponge are the function space mm -hmm. we take the inner product of our special function and any function yeah and it will evaluate to that function's value at that point, at the given point in your room. But so the inner product is now, the inner product between these two functions is a number? Because we've given it an argument and we've evaluated it at that argument. The inner product, we first take the inner product <laughs> between the two functions and then we feed it the argument. Between the two functions. Yeah. But what we're getting here is the scalar product. This will, like if we give it a numbered argument, mm -hmm. it will reduce to the single value output. And that th this is a weird thing to think about, but it like it, it basically this is one of the parts where it's like follow the maths. It, it just jumps out of the maths. But in in the name of trying to simplify this, if we were doing it with real valued functions defined like temperature values in your room, 
then the evaluation functional would be what, say, 20, 21 degrees, because we're using air conditioning, then that's going to get, yes, that's the value that, say it's the perfect function, we are going to get that 21 degrees out. Because the functions that evaluate to that point, right, uh, the functions may be wrong, they may give us 100 degrees, but with this one other special function, it will reduce down to a scalar value. But this, these, these are abstract spaces at the moment, like where in practice, you don't use a Hilbert space, you use it to construct other spaces that you do practical things with. Okay. Yeah. So like so, the, so you, you have, you're not... for each point, you have a special function and yep. the inner product of that special function with any other function. Yes. Will turn out to be always this number. Not, it will be the value of the number, like f of, say we've got f of x, right? We want to find f of x. Yeah. So we get our evaluation functional at x, and we find our one special function mm -hmm. at x, right? And then we pick the f, right? And the f, no matter which f we pick, we take in a product of those two things in the high dimensional space, and mm -hmm. it will give us our f of x. Okay. So that's a weird thing to have happen. You have a, a function within the space that behaves exactly like we, exactly like the one thing we want it to do. Okay. Yeah. And, and th this, again, this is abstract. We're never going to be calculating with Hilbert spaces in practice. We're going to turn it into matrices or Fourier bases somewhere and then do something practical with it. Um, special function is different for each point that we evaluate at. So, so if we get two of them and put mm -hmm. them together, we can use them to create an equivalence between evaluating a, evaluating a function at two points, uh, the inner product of two points under a certain function in the space and just this special kernel function that we build. And that this okay. is actually the reproducing kernel of the mm -hmm. reproducing kernel Hilbert space, because it basically what it does is you, you hit any function in the space with this function and you get the function back, but evaluate it. And, and that's why it's called the reproducing kernel. Okay. All right. Uh, or yeah, you, when you do it with two points, it becomes a reproducing kernel. Right now, these things have a couple of neat properties. One, they're positive semi-definite and they're going to be symmetric. Um, and this is basically because we're defining them in terms of an inner product. And like on, on the theoretical side, they induce a unique, every reproducing kernel induces a unique reproducing kernel Hilbert space and vice versa. Every reproducing kernel Hilbert space has a unique reproducing kernel. But here's where it gets cool. Every reproducing kernel is uh, semi-definite, uh, is sorry, positive definite, and occasionally positive semi-definite. But every positive definite kernel function defines a unique reproducing kernel Hilbert space for which it is the unique reproducing kernel for. Wow. Right? So if, <laughs> if we can just find a, a function that has this nice property, we get yeah. this amazing optimization space out of it, like for free. Uh, yeah. And that, that's the core of what an RKHS does. Okay, so yeah, to track back, if to go from the other side, if we yep. find any function where we plug in two data points in our date, nice data space, RD, whatever, uh, and it turns out to be positive semi-definite, yep. just or positive definite. If, if oh, there's, just, they're called Mercer's conditions. There's a bunch of things. Okay. You go to Wikipedia, you do yeah. your proofs, and you check that it holds. <laughs> So if this is the case, any function, then we know that this corresponds to these spaces. Yeah. This, so that we know that 
for let's formulate this out. We know that there is a function space that has as base like basis function. And what happens if we plug two data points into the kernel? What happens is that what we the magically the special function for X is gathered and the mm. special function for Y is gathered. And then now you have to complete my sentence. <laughs> okay. Basically, what it does is it lets us evaluate the inner product of f of x and f of y, uh -huh. which may be much harder than calculating the original function. Okay. That's, again, all we've done now is we've shown this equivalence between this nifty little function that we can fairly easily define and a much trickier operation that may be infinite dimensional or very high dimensional or don't want a computable. But how does it connect to these special functions that we before where we said for each point there is like this very special function we take two of those special functions yeah for x and y and we take the inner product of them and that gives us the special function that or the the other function that allows us to do the inner product okay. without yeah so that's yeah that was it from this side i yeah. i think we made the connection to <laughs> to what we had before and, so and on the, the special function you mean this phi thing this feature yeah, so that's this is one way of doing it. Fee, it doesn't necessarily have to be fee. It can just be a straight up inner product. The the key thing though is we are pitching this as a computational saving device. Yes. So you, so you create this n by n matrix. So you just do this simple transformation on the matrix itself, and you don't need to compute all of these the, these intermediate feature transformations on all of the yep. pairs of the examples. And yep. supposedly it saves us loads and loads of time, but it doesn't. Because as I said, on, on the, the radial basis function, only the first few dimensions are important. On the polynomial, you don't really need that many anyway. And you're limited just on the computational methods of how kernels are used on the, the number of examples that you could use anyway. So does it really save you that much time in, in practice? I mean, in practice, for small linear systems, it's much quicker, especially if the, the system's like under ill-posed, right? You've got way more variables than you do observations. In, in which case this gives you something that your linear solver isn't going to die on and it gives you something that you know if, especially for online applications you can very quickly have these things optimizing in real time based on the last n samples and use it for like you know noise finding or anomaly detection or whatever you want to do but, but, um, but there's two things there's two things though right because yep. you said that, that your linear solver wouldn't die on but yep. you could still, so let's say kernel yep. ridge regression, you could still construct that kernel by um, computing the feature transformation on all of the pairs without using the kernel trick. And then you've still got the same thing, right? Well, you just so brought up the kernel trick and this is the beauty of it. Sometimes you can't get that feature map, the map that gives you the straight up vectors, or you don't like for whatever reason, you don't want to compute it in which like the real use case here is the radial basis function because even if um even if you're only going out to two terms the the radial basis kernel itself is it's just a pairwise subtraction and then you put it into a couple of floating point operations things like exponents things like divisions and it just pops out the other side that's a fair computational saving i'd argue the motivation here in the, like with deep learning what it is the real motivation here is like these things have nice theoretical properties they're really nice to understand other problems they're not always practical. They have niche applications. But if we're making an argument based on like pure computational efficiency for big problems, 
no, as soon as your data gets big, they're no good. This is why you shouldn't really ever bother with them unless you've got very good computational budget reason reasons to consider them. That right. that they're but, fairly robust, but but again, devil's advocate. I recommend people check this lecture out. By the way, by Caltech, they've got a pretty good lecture on kernel mm. methods, and it actually shows the expansion for this uh, polynomial. Uh, sorry, this Gaussian, the radial basis uh, function kernel, and you can see here that it's a Taylor series expansion, and the sum here is is to infinity. Mm. But and it, it it decays very quickly, right? So the basis function it it goes up at the beginning, and then it it um, decays very quickly, and it kind of converges towards zero, and you're summing up over over the sum. But I guess my my point is, we we make a big song and dance about oh, having infinite dimensions is a good thing, but it's not really game changing, is it? Well, I mean, I, we, we could easily I, just use the polynomial kernel, compute it directly, don't use the kernel trick at all. We wouldn't be much worse off, would we? The infinite dimensional thing is a red herring. It, people get tripped up on it. People think the infinite dimensions is... Uh, no, that just gives us a nice search space. Yes, we're doing infinite dimensional stuff, but it's a complete distraction. People think that's the secret of success, and it's not. If any, the, the whole point of the representer theorem, which uh, we'll, we'll get to in a bit, uh, how are we for time? We got another half hour? Um, I've got my constraint. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. We've got plenty of time, but when we get to the representer theorem, the whole point is we do away with all of the extra dimensions. We don't want them. They're they're a distraction, and and they are actively unhelpful. Uh, but yeah, the having all these extra dimensions may may simplify things for us. Often they do because we don't need like a lot of the variation across the data set gets removed and and it's like a soft nearest neighbors like thinking of kernel methods as a soft nearest neighbors is a fairly good a fairly good way to approach it all we're doing is we're saying yeah. how similar are these data points to others other data points and if it's more efficient to do the full inner product than do the full inner product let's talk about that because this radial basis function that's one yeah. of these um i think it was it called a, a homogeneous kernel where it's it's only a function of the the distance between yeah uh, examples right so yeah. you likened it to being a bit like nearest neighbor and mm. there are even uh, i forget the name of this approach is it kernel density methods where you just kind of drop gaussian well, kernels on top of all of the examples and you create this landscape it's not too dissimilar to that right so you're, you're building this landscape it's different in terms of like the whole point of the structure that's more done for integrate or like integrability but yeah it's not ridiculously different we are dropping some Gaussian distance function and then using that to build up a map of density of points. And when you're doing uh, radial basis regression, you are literally just saying, how far is this point from every other point? Oh, this point's a one and this point's a zero. Oh, my new point is more similar to the one than the zero. It must be a one, right? It, it's, not, it's not rocket science. But I guess I'm just trying to understand what are all of the key advantages here and Clearly, the first advantage is being able to use linear. I think you said Strang says that everything goes towards linear algebra. So we're using linear methods to potentially regress or classify in non-linear spaces. And that doesn't require the kernel trick. It just requires some uh, non-linear transformation into, yeah. a, into space. Uh, there might be some computational characteristics which make this quite nice. I mean, wh wh where's the real gain here? Again, I'd say the real gain, unless you've got a, a good reason for implementing the kernel method, then go for a deep neural network. If, if your goal is performance, go for a deep neural network. The, the real gain here of, of reducing it to this linear operation in like a Hilbert space is you can attack, you know, say, say you want to figure out how to make your attention kernel more efficient. You can, you've now got a set of theoretical tools 
which you know, they're very well founded and fairly robust that you can use to attack this problem. Say you've got a, a distance measure that doesn't quite work, right? It doesn't quite hold. These methods are so robust that you can, like Kale divergence, for example, you can still use these methods on a Kale divergence kernel. I have no idea what the expansion of that would be. It'd probably be simpler to calculate it some other way, but you can do it, right? You come up with a distance metric and then you run regression on it and it'll work. And then you can use these tools to explore why it works and to explore the kinds of relationships, the kinds of functions that it's giving you. You know, that for, for, I'd, I'd argue that's the big advantage. It's not that these models were good for their time. They're basically obsolete now. They have very niche applications in things like uh, meta-learning approaches or you're putting on top of semi-supervised models, like ver old, everything old is new again. But in general, like it's not about the performance. It's about the fact that these things are provable. Like they're, they're not like a, a neural network where there comes a point where we just start waving our hands and then say universal function approximation theorem. In this case, we can say yeah. exactly what's going on. We can write down exactly what's going on. And yeah, so if you're a statistician or something. Just quickly on, on that point, because I was watching that Caltech lecture and, and the guy was saying there's some really interesting theoretical properties about ma maximum margin uh, yeah. classifiers in general. And yeah. first of all, you would expect if you use this radial basis function that almost every single example would be a support vector. So it'd be propping up the hyperplane. But typically that doesn't happen, actually. It's some percentage. It might be 10% of the examples yeah. or so on. And, and you can um, theoretically, there's a theorem, which is a function of the number of support vectors, which gives you uh, an estimate of your out of sample, all sorts you, of interesting things like that. You were saying earlier about like, how do we not end up in cursed dimensionality city? Uh, I, I actually forgot to reread that paper. I read that paper a couple of months ago and I thought, oh, I'll have to reread it and then completely forgot. But yeah, part, part of the, because so few of these points actually contribute to the outputs in maximum margin uh, classifiers, you do get this improved imperviousness to, to dimensionality. Like it doesn't go away. It's just not as big of a problem. And you know how big of a problem it will be because you can put bounds on it. I believe that was the output anyway, but we shouldn't be looking at the, these things as the new state of the art. They're never going to be that because one, we've made a huge assumption over the kinds of relationships that we're likely to find in our data. We've defined that by our kernel function. But what they are useful for is if we find ourselves, say we're doing style transfer, say we're doing an attention mechanism, and we note that hey, this thing that I'm generating here, it's all inner products or it's all positive semi-definite and encodes a similarity metric. All of a sudden you can attack that. You can start to say, hang on, okay, what's going on here? I want to make, I, I don't want to do an, an N cubed operation here. I want to get it down to N log N. All right, let's go look at the sparse kernel literature and see what lives in there. You know, that's the real advantage here. Not that it's going to give you amazing performance, but it allows you to understand what you're doing so that your search for improvements isn't a blind search through just engineering trial and error. You can say, okay, what do we actually know about the problem and start to exploit those properties to make advancements. Well, to bring it back, Tim, Tim could you show that lecture slide again? Um, because I, I think yeah. that illustrates it very nicely with what's going on with inner products and infinite dimensions and so on. So if we just look at this, so the, this the exponential or the, is it the exponential kernel? Uh, yeah, the radial like, basis. Radial basis kernel, sorry. So on the bottom, we would see what you'd have to do if you were to compute this explicitly, right? So you'd have to compute for data point one, you'd have to compute, compute all the blue things, like including every single thing in the sum 
and then keep them around. You can't do the sum without the orange thing. So you need to compute all the blue thing and all the orange things, and then you need to, then you basically have two vectors, and then you need to compute the inner product, which is in this case is an is an infinite sum. Mm. Uh, but you could just plug that in on top, and that would we know for a fact that would give you the exact same thing as if you were to if you were to do that. And all all of these functions somehow have these properties. So even absent of whatnot infinite dimensions and so on. We've seen this pop up in transformers, right? In these mm. kind of linear transformers already, where we know we have to do this giant inner product matrix in these attention mechanisms. And these people said, instead of this, we might just want to use like a, a kernel method to reduce that uh, down. Yes. Is that okay? So it has various applications, right? So we can yeah. think of this and throw this into some higher dimension, or but also it actually has practical engineering applications. What do you? How does that hit you? This kind of how people use it in transformers. How do you? What do you make of that? I I think that this is the right way to start thinking about these things, right? We don't need to reinvent everything. A lot of this work has been done. There's a lot of good research in making these things more computationally efficient. Again, don't use them as the basis of models. Notice mm. that you're doing kernel-y stuff in your model and go, oh, maybe we can improve this. Maybe we can find an alternate formulation. Mm -hmm. where, we, where we go to, okay, we, we now have some of these notion of kernels and inner products and so on. So what do we do with them? Because usually the, the let's say, academic literature, lectures, whatnot, at some point they, they come up and say, Here's this margin thing. So how does this connect? Because if you build up support vector machines, generally margin appears as simply the distance between class A and class B, and you can have soft margin and hard margin, and then all of a sudden kernels appear. All right, so that kind of, I believe that actually comes out of a slightly different branch, but it was around at the same time as all the kernel theory was really getting developed. I think that one popped out of the no free lunch theorem, that, that there are multiple planes that can split the data, but mm -hmm. we want to find the one, the best one. Yeah. Um, the reason that it pairs with kernels is because you can modify a linear solver in, in, a, in a neat way. You, you use a regularized, a regularized empirical risk problem on this positive semi-definite matrix, and you will uh, you can modify it to have this maximum margin property with it. And, and that just, it, it happens that these two things worked well together, probably because the space is very high dimensional. And so not just finding an arbitrary line, but finding a, a big line, a line with the maximum distance separating the classes tends to mitigate that somewhat. That's SVM. But really for the purpose of understanding kernels and how they work it's probably better just to get to kernel regression get like once you've got kernel regression under your head go okay now we start pairing it with crazy optimizers and this new loss function and some nice hyperparameter tuning oh we're going to throw in some sparse operations to compute everything super rapidly and that's that's where the svm literature took off it had its own engineering phase that engineered these really efficient routines for calculating them and that was a big part of the reason for their success i think they get lumped in in the lectures because you are building towards 
SVMs. You're not building towards kernel regression because people hear kernel regression, they go, oh, well, it's just linear regression. Yeah, but the kernelized, if you can't build towards a kernel method, you can't build towards SVMs because you're not going to build towards Bayesian non-parametrics. It's too complicated and there's too many other things that need to be brought in. But yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I, I think the the hinge loss, the, the way they lead into it and say, oh, it pairs with kernels. Well, it also pairs with neural networks, right? It's just a loss function. At the end of the yeah. day, it's just a loss function. I, I certainly think there's something magic about ridge regression in particular, just because it's beautifully simple. It's least squares with this regularization term. You're looking for this uh, parameter vector W, which is basically the line. And then there's a regularization term where you want W to be quite small, mm -hmm. and then you can solve it in dual uh, form and you, you can realize. And what's beautiful about kernel ridge regression is there's a closed form solution. So you, you have to compute a matrix inverse of the kernel, you know, the, the covariance matrix. Yep. And then weirdly, you have to multiply it by the target labels. But it, it's it's just a, a beautiful thing. And, and mm. it's quite complicated to solve an inverse of a matrix, but because I think it's cubic time complexity, but you can rearrange it to solve a linear system. And you can even do some kind of, if you're doing online ridge regression, you can do like a sliding incremental update version. So you can basically do it in linear time. And yeah. there's something magic about that. Yeah. And that's really the, the point where you see ridge regression and then the dual of it and you're just like, oh, that's a matrix of inner products. What happens if I change out my distance or similarity metric? And you just drop in whatever metric you want and it works. That's a special moment. That's like, holy, it feels like you're tapping into something deep there. That's really where all the, um, where all the, the Hilbert space kind of stuff comes in because it enables that transformation. It enables you to see that you're taking a bunch of inner products. Oh, maybe we want some other distance. But I don't know if anyone's ever tried it with, um, with, Style transfer, I know they're starting to try it with attention, but surely there's more ground to be gained there. That people suddenly being aware that, oh, we're, we're doing a whole heap of inner products. Maybe we can do something kernelly here. Maybe something interesting will come of that. Maybe it won't. Research works in weird ways, but I genuinely think the more people understand the, that the matrices, uh, the matrices that they're looking at aren't just, aren't just arrays of numbers they have special properties that you can exploit that you can find cool things to do with you know the more people look at it that way i, I think the more the field will progress overall so to 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 get there is it's because we've skipped over a number of things quite like like so all of a sudden we're talking about ridge regression which as tim said is least squares with a mm. with a regularizer and then the dual of that is so I don't know if everyone knows what a dual is. It always seemed like a magical word to me, but some problems have a dual formulation where it's simply a, a different way of writing down a problem. And for a special class of these problems, this dual version, if you solve it, it gives you the exact same solution as what as the original one, which is called primal. And then for a wider class, it gives you a, a bound on the solution. It doesn't actually give you the same solution, but you, it, there's a little gap remaining. But I've, in this case, I guess it gives you the same solution. So it's just a different way of writing the problem. But in this different way of writing the problem, all of a sudden, it's not least squares, but it's somehow inner products appear. Yeah. Right? So yeah. In, in this ridge regression. Do you guys want to walk through ridge regression real briefly? 
Yeah, we, we can do that. And, and what's interesting about the ridge regression is that there is a closed form solution for the primal as well, I think. And, yeah. and that is you have to invert an M by M matrix in that, which is the number of attributes squared. And because there's a computational trade-off, because if you use the dual formulations on the N by N, then it means that you have to invert potentially a very large matrix if you have, have a lot of examples. Yeah, and and that's really the killer thing with these kernel or kernel methods. Generally, you do end up with these big sort of um, outer products of data matrices. And if you've got a million observations, then good luck calling that into memory. I'm going to sit back and wait while you scream at your computer to respond again. Yeah, because it does it does just make me think that this is crazy because people say, "Oh, deep learning is ridiculous and it's computationally intractable." But in many ways, there's some beautiful properties about deep learning. I, I love the way oh, that you end-to-end -end learning and, and the backprop algorithm, and you can send mini batches through it and so on. And, and these SVMs, they work on incredibly parsimonious problems where you have hardly any examples. But computationally, they seem to blow up uh, quicker than deep learning models. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm always amused when people start talking about, oh, neural tangent kernels, they're fantastic. We can simulate a neural network by getting its similarity function and just directly calculating it. And then even on a problem like MNIST, they're calling into existence a 60,000 by 60,000 matrix. And you know, <laughs> on every evaluation, they have to evaluate 60,000 times to fit that into the problem. Yeah, that's insanity. Because part of me just thinks that SVMs are from, a, they were from a time when we had hardly any, because we used to work on like the Boston housing data set, yeah. which had 506 examples on. And the, the main heuristic with SVMs was this notion that the maximum margin works really, really well. But for, for deep learning, we have so many examples. We're solving a completely different type of problem. And the magical thing about deep learning for me is that it's more akin to software. It's like a, a sequence of steps. And you can learn the entire sequence end-to-end -end as part of the training pro process. So you can do something really, really sophisticated in many steps. And it just seems like such an exciting paradigm compared to what we're talking about here, which is learning the optimal separating hyperplane in a bunch of data points. Do, do you yeah, know what but, I mean? But then you come across like Gaussian processes where it's an it's literally an infinite parameter model. You know, it, it, it's a model that grows in complexity as your data set grows. And that's an exciting idea all by itself. Like Bayesian non-parametrics in general is a fascinating field because it's the, these models that grow in, in complexity with response to like how complex the data is. And yeah, the, these methods are fundamentally kernel methods. They look a lot like the the dual formulation of, of ridge regression. So uh, I, again, the, the promise here isn't that, that they're going to do things more effectively. Like a deep neural network will beat it on performance any day of the week, unless it's like some trivial toy problem, in which case maybe instability of, of your parameters comes to, to bite you. But I think it, but they are fascinating. Because there's this, I think SVMs work really well when you've hardly got any data. Yeah, yeah. Are, are you saying that when you have lots of data or when, also the, the beauty of deep learning is that they have inductive priors that allow them to work quite well on unstructured data without having to create features and so on. Presumably that that's a, a huge advantage as well. That's an advantage if you've got lots of data that accurately represents your problem. But if you don't necessarily have that or you want an explicit relationship to be modeled, then these are actually liabilities. And there are cases where you can't do this. I'm always talking about Andrew Gelman because I think the man's brilliant. But he's got this fantastic graph on the, the front cover of, 
BDA3, Bayesian Data Analysis 3, that breaks down a uh, number of births across time, across years, spikes in the days, et cetera. And, and this was all done with ga multi-level nested Gaussian processes. It's a fascinating bit of statistics, but you couldn't just say, oh, well, give me a black box on the relationship here because you'd be picking up all kinds of noise and you wouldn't know how to interpret it. So where, where yeah. interpretability is important, manually specifying these things is often useful. Yeah, the, to go back a, a bit to how, how we even get there in the discussion with deep learning and all, if I can continue where I was before, <laughs> saying that, okay, it, there is a way to look at ridge regression where these inner products appear. Now, this, and then you said, okay, we're, we're doing kernel-y things. And, and this is exactly where we get with the transformers, where people say, look in this transformer thing, we don't even need to go to dual. There's just this thing right here. There's this inner product of all the, the data points or the elements in the set and transformers and for some reason like this this inner product matrix is there what is what happens if we just replace this by this kernel because we know kernels are inner products now in ridge regression if we change the inner product to be a kernel we know that it corresponds to an inner product in some other space and now we're doing basically we're doing regression on points that live in that other space implicitly yes. right yes so we're doing we're doing regression in that why so my question here is this it seems given the number of kernels that exist this is not necessarily a better thing first of all this is actually the space where we're at might be pretty good for regression or it might not be pretty good for regression is the fact that these kernel methods work so well just that we have found kernels, namely, let's say the RBF kernel. We have found this kernel that just appears to really express pretty well natural data. Is that an intuition or is, is there something more special about that kernel? Because for any kernel function, it can make it worse or it can make it better. I think I, you've hit the nail on the head there that or, on many layers. One, it could be that our inner products are the the best possible distance metric, particularly when you consider the dynamics of backpropagation and like what throwing exponents in there for very small numbers will do to stability, et cetera. It could be that the RBF corresponds to the, distribu the natural distribution of data pretty well. And I think that's the current going hy hypothesis and it certainly feels that way. I barely maybe test other kernel functions before I decide that the RBF is gonna work for me. It it's really a case of we don't know whether or not other functions may work better. And even if other functions don't work better, the fact that it has this kernel representation means that we can think about solving these in frequency space, for example, mm. or you know, principled methods of uh, reducing the overall number of points that we look at, sort of like a subsampling method or other spectral methods involving um, SVDs or something like that. Would these be computationally more efficient? I don't know. Would they give better performance? Eh, but we're not going to know unless we check. And as opposed to just randomly trying things, being like, hey, this has worked for this entire literature for 20 years is a fairly good guide that maybe we should try it on the problems that we're facing now. Cool. Yeah, all right. Sorry. Tim. Yeah, I mean, just one more quick contrast. Deep learning, right? It's 
it's mini batch based and you're fundamentally learning a continuous geometric morphing from one manifold to another and it's beautiful because you can just put in one mini batch at a time and you can just do stochastic gradient descent god knows why it works <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it, it's i watched yannick's video on ensemble methods and it's really interesting how in these high dimensional spaces it's actually surprisingly convex but there are many basins of attraction and depending <laughs> on your initial starting weights you go into a different one although it still works you know in quite an equivalent way but this is completely different this conceptually this is more like nearest neighbor you're rather than cursoring through the data set you're you're taking all of the examples you're looking at all of the pairwise distances and then you're doing stuff in that space that seems a little bit old hat to me it it certainly look it, it does but there are applications where you can't just mini batch your way through it and things like point clouds even representing a point cloud in a, a sensible manner doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily uh, translate to neural network performance. Generally, you have to find some coordinate system or some coordinate free system with which you can represent these things. One way which you can do this is pairwise distances. And uh, th there's a great book out there. It's in preprint at the moment, but you can download the whole thing by free uh, for free called Geometric Data Analysis. It's by the guy who made uh, the uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, Coops package, K-E-O-P-S for PyTorch, as well as a PyTorch implementation of regularized Wasserstein distances, et cetera. And it's, it's a fantastic, it walks through exactly the sorts of problems you encounter once you move beyond these nice, specifically CNN-friendly data structures. And things like distances work fine there because you don't require a coordinate system to be able to represent things accurately. So there are applications where this works, but yeah, the fact that it gives you a, comp a, a convex problem that is that will have a global optima, even though in the data space, it's hideously nonlinear. These ideas, I, I used to just ignore them and laugh. A, a friend of mine, Liam Hodgkinson, he's, uh, where is he at the moment? Stanford, I think. He, he was just imploring me one evening, but don't you care if there's a solution? I'm like, no, as long as my, my training, my validation accuracy is good, I don't care. But the more I think, the more I think it's right. It's nice to know that it'll go somewhere because if it's the middle layer of some multi-GPU monstrosity, the last thing you want is it diverging $2 million into training with another million dollars of wasted time to burn. Yeah, to wrap up, a bit how do we get from all of this to the representer theorem and what is that okay so the representer theorem we've come jumping back and forth i, I had a, a cool thing where we we went from basics i should have known that i was dealing with engineers but you know uh, the the representer theorem key to how we tie together these weird funky functions and uh, and a problem that we can actually solve the representer theorem i'm, I'm gonna basically read from my notes here because it's a bit complicated so first in Wikipedia speak is every function in the RKHS that minimizes a regularized empirical risk functional can be represented as a finite linear combination of kernel products evaluated on the input points in the training data set. So to pass that into to simpler forms, our optimum function, our best function can be represented, the one that minimizes our loss can be represented as some kind of linear problem on the data on the kernel functions of the data set so we just what this is saying is we take the kernel products of our data and we run linear regression on now how do we get there 
the first thing is we know that we've got our feature maps, which we'll call phi, and our, our magic reproducing kernels, which we'll call uh, k. And we're looking for some magic function f star, which is our, the function that minimizes our empirical risk. Because this is a Hilbert space, it's a, a vector space, we can break this into two chunks. The chunk that is that has the bases given by our fees, which and we just take a weighted sum of them, and it's complement. And that's an infinite dimensional space. We can't do anything with it. But we can show that the result... Our, Wait, isn't our, it infinite dimensional space because yeah. we use an infinite dimensional kernel? Uh, no. Or is we, it an infinite dimensional space because of something else? It's It could be infinite dimensional because our basis functions are infinite yep. dimensional themselves but even then the space is still we're using those bases as the uh, those functions as the bases for our space literally every other potential function imaginable lives in that space okay so it's big it's really big and but what what we can show is that the result uh, i'm not going to talk through the proof i don't even remember the proof there's a good proof wikipedia is a great uh reference for maths it's the only subject that wikipedia is any good for but you can show that the optimum function must live in the base in the basis of of those fees, the fees of our training data points, because it's an empirical risk functional, and the the contribution of the complement of the space. All those other infinite functions must be equal to zero, right? So we can safely ignore all of the space except for that is given by our data points, right? So the, this space is made yep. up of I take every possible data point that I can imagine. Nope. And only and the I, ones that you have. Only the ones that I. Yeah. Wait. But which ones are then zero? Every other data point that That's you don't have. That's what I'm have. saying. That's what I'm saying. Oh, okay. I, I take the space of every possible data point that I could imagine yeah. and run them through my fee function, right? Yeah. Through my function in this, whatever, this, either yeah. if it's a polynomial kernel, I run it through the polynomial or I just map it to this high dimensional space. And that gives me like a giant space and every possible data point gives rise to one basis yep. direction in that space. And then the solution to my problem that I have, which is in a completely different, like has nothing to do with this space. Like this space per se knows nothing about what I'm trying to minimize over here because yep. it doesn't even have the labels, right? Yep. But yet still I know that the solution to whatever problems I could throw at this um, data set must live in some kind of a linear combination of these yes. five vectors. Okay, yeah. so that basically says that I all I have to do is ask all the data points what they think yeah. about a given solution and they will, I don't need to do anything else. Basically, yeah, even, even though you, and, and this is kind of the problem with these Hilbert spaces that they are infinite and then you need to consider the, the whole infinity of them. But because we're doing empirical risk minimization, which uh, our, our, our function space doesn't know about our labels, but our empirical risk operator, our mm -hmm. empirical risk functional will, the point that minimizes that is our optimum point. And that will lie in the basis of the vectors given, or the not the vectors, the bases given by our feature map, our map into the feature space, which could be highly nonlinear or non-computable. And okay, so here's a question. Why is this, let's say, surprising 
because I can say well, it's obviously it's like a giant space already. Like it's every data point is a base direction. Pretty much any function is probably in there somewhere. Well, because the the problem is nonlinear in our data mm -hmm. space, but it's linear in our feature space. Okay. Because it's linear in our feature space, mm -hmm. it's linear in our kernel space, and our kernel function we can compute very efficiently. Because that, that evaluation functional is linear and continuous. That's more just okay. a guarantee that you can search through the space. Yeah. It's because the feature map, we can show that a feature map, if it obeys certain properties, is positive definite, and it's it'll give us our own reproducing kernel for that particular data point. So those kernel functions themselves are what we run regression on. We, we don't worry about the feature maps, right? Think yeah. back to the exponential kernel. We're not doing that in infinite sum. Yeah. We're, um, we're just going to do it on the, the pairwise distance run through some exponent, and, and that will give us our answer, right? So like in, in, in terms of, so now, now what I'm understanding is, okay, instead of doing super duper nonlinear regression, mm -hmm. what I, I can do is I can do linear regression in this big space, or I can do linear regression in the kernel space. Yeah. And, but what that means is, my data points are like the, the inputs to my kernel function, but I need to do linear regression in the kernel space and the kernel itself is not a linear function. So a little bit, it's like backprop, right? Where I have the loss at the end, what comes out of the kernel, I put into my loss, my risk minimization, and then I need to know somehow the gradient with respect to the convex combination coefficients well kind of what we're doing in that space remember is inner products we're going to draw these hyperplanes in the the feature space which we can express as these kernel as these pairwise sort of kernel functions yeah it's linear in that kernel space because we're just taking a weighted sum of the kernels which is equivalent to searching through a weighted sum of the feature space which yeah. we don't want to calculate so what it ends up looking like is when you normally do linear regression, you get coefficients on the variables. And yes. instead, what we're going to do is we're going to get coefficients on the data points. We're mm -hmm. saying which data point, if you're similar to which data point, what does that mean for the, for the probability of a target label? Yeah. And framed in those terms, it, it's a fairly straightforward jump to see how, you can, how it can be nonlinear, but yes. linearly solvable. So, and it kind of the links to the nearest neighbor, et cetera. But that you usually, yeah, there is this formulation, especially in the SVM, there's a formulation with this convex quadratic optimizers, but this technically is solvable by gradient descent. Do it with Adam for fun in PyTorch, yeah. see that it works, <laughs> right? Like that, and yeah, all the stuff about convex quadratic optimizers, that's, that's some other kettle of fish. Most people yeah. these days don't even look at that stuff. You can solve this in PyTorch, having a bit of fun with, with loss functions yeah. and auto -grade. And I could think about, but I do it in stepwise fashion, right? but every single step, I need to pass all my data through the kernel, all my and, combinations, and this, every two data points, I need to pass through the kernel in every iteration step. And then I need to calculate the gradients with respect to how much I weigh each data well, point. In, in practice, you wouldn't even do that. You just yeah. calculate the kernel matrix and then do regression on that and yeah. ta take the kernel matrix as your data. And okay. that's and now you're starting to see why these methods have fallen out of fashion because yeah. storing that matrix is a pain and you need to store all the data points to do inference. So for a particular solution, let's say I do that and yeah. I obtain my, obtain my solution, which is 
is uh, given as a combination of data points, basically. Yep. So whenever I want to classify a new data point, what that means is I have to calculate the kernel with each other data point in my data set, then yep. do this weighting that I got. So basically every data point gives its opinion about this new point. Yes. In the weights that I have predetermined. And okay, and then there is a somehow a property that arises that it's not actually every data point, but only very few. On the maximum on the maximum margin, yes. Okay. Uh, so that's not for if any I loss do function. No, for if you're just doing, say, linear regression or like kernel regression on a continuous output, right? The it, it is robust because it's like voting. Yes. You do get that kind of the robustness from having more points and uh, a single outlier against. We've lost you, Alex. The Chinese Hello. firewall has struck again. <laughs> I'm back. You're I think back. <laughs> he's back. back. Yeah. Which is good because as soon as the call actually dropped, I swore my head off. Yeah, it's it 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 gets some robustness from the fact it's comparing to multiple points. So it, it has yeah. to be a systematic set of outliers that causes overfitting rather than just a very large value with respect to a single point. Mm. But okay, so we have the in maximum margin, the contribution of most data points is close to zero or exactly zero? Um, close to zero. Close it's, it's, to zero. Except yeah. if you I guess you could put the usual L1 regularizer in, but Maybe I don't know, oh, but if okay, but in, Actually, yeah, let's say in Gaussian processes or things of that nature, you really have all the data points sort of voting on a new data point and so on. And that means the more data points you have, the more complex your model becomes. Yes, um, yeah, so but it's it's worse because it goes from like a, a quadratic calculation to a cubic calculation. Okay. Now, can you, can you connect this to what we currently see in like NLP, where we know that these big giant models, okay, it's, they're, they're not non-parametric, they are very much parametric, but we still know that what we have to do is we have to scale up the data and the model size comparably. Mm -hmm. If we scale up the data and the model size comparably, then we get large gains, these models become much more powerful. And that is the same thing as adding more data points to these, yeah. to these kind of kernel methods. Like, do you yeah. see a connection there? Or? Absolutely. In that as our data gets more complex, our model gets more complex. We had a bit of a chat last night about doing fully Bayesian neural networks and how this may or how you can do things like automatically determining the appropriate size of your model, as well as mm -hmm. what hyperparameters you can have, at least in a distributional sense. And thinking about like how this relates to Gaussian processes, Bayesian non-parametrics, these giant text models. First of all, can I say I will never advocate ever doing Bayesian non-parametrics on that sort of scale. Like there's only so many tears my computer can cry before it doesn't care anymore. But the idea of making a bigger model for more complex data is that's a very natural concept the only real trick with these kernel methods particularly as they apply to gaussian processes is that it's all determined by the data the the parameters are implicit parameters they're not if if a lot of your data points are very similar or the same then the actual complexity of the model doesn't grow that much even though mm -hmm. the size will and really it's memory that kills kernel methods nine times out of 10. Okay.
Which is ironic because it's used to save memory in Transformers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and it, it it works there for that very specific reason that the trend, the attention kernel is a fixed size, so we can pre-allocate yeah. it and do all of the nice efficient CUDA ops. If your attention kernels were to grow in size, then there's also a reason that Transformers are very heavily limited in t- in terms of how big they can get because those yeah. that memory footprint gets very large very quickly. So apart from, let's say, Transformers, do you have any suspicion of where we are going to seek kernel methods, kernelization, any sort of that appear back into modern deep learning? Style transfer and super yeah. resolution. Okay. Style transfer for fair, well, hopefully fairly obvious reasons. You're doing a lot of grand matrix stuff in there to, to actually start to calculate loss functions. And there may be optimizations or at least maybe not kernelizations, but alternate distance metrics that give better performance in that space. That would be one outreach. And in super resolution, there's actually some cool stuff going on here at the moment. Guys doing some fairly insane on-device super resolution. And if you look closely, you can see a lot of small artifacts. So the deep learning process is really good for getting approximate solutions, but it's really bad for getting close solutions. In fact, I was trying to do camera pose estimation and simultaneous location and mapping and found that you could get a a very good approximate answer, but if you wanted an exact answer, even if the uh, perturbation was really small, the answers were just garbage. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that sort of sense, being able to solve that last mile step, if you've got things very close and you just want to make them perfect, Having a series of very small convex optimization problems that can be ran very quickly provides a, a grounding for taking the next step forward. And if that sounds a bit a bit abstract, it's what's powering uh, the Google Pixel phone, the super resolution they do without deep learning, just from yeah. using the shaking of your hand as you take a photo, they then use kernel methods to optimize what each pixel should be in a super resolution sense. And they can do it like in a split second because these problems are very small and can be solved so quickly. But is, wow. is it the the computational performance thing? Or because you said it's also an exact solution, so it, it's better. On the style transfer, for example, yeah. you said it was about a, a loss function. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. The, for deep learning to work well, it needs to be end-to-end and the loss function needs to be differentiable and, and, yep. and so on. So how, how does that work? And why would they choose to use a kernel for that? Because they're already using gram matrices as a way of measuring similarity between outputs. I think they throw like a VGG model at it or something like that um, conventionally, and then look at layer 14, 15, and see how similar the outputs there are. And then you basically, you do gradient descent back to your original image and edit the image so that Upper, that upper feature layer is very similar or has very similar uh, outputs to, it's done two ways anyway. One's on the norm of the gram matrix, one's on the gram matrix itself. So a different distance function, like, I don't know, Wasserstein distance, KL divergence or something like that, would yield uh, a different notion of um, what similarity looks like. Because if you think back to the early days doing VAE image gener- generation, People were using least squares for that and just getting this horrible blurry mess. And that's because, you know, least squares is a horrible blurry loss function. Taking it in a product is similar. It's, it, it has a lot of the same sort of problems with it in terms of using it as a distance metric. It's liable to be affected by outliers. It ignores small differences rather than having a nice sharp point at the bottom of it like an L1 loss function would. So ex- exploring different 
different distance metrics at least would give a different kernel matrix that would represent the notion of similarity in a, a way that may be more amenable to like deep learning based optimization. It, it may be that the, the, the whole system is sufficiently nonlinear that doing anything other than a gram matrix is wasting computation and messing with your gradients. That may be the case, 100%. But it may also be that a, a better choice of a distance function in that space does give better results. And I think that's worth investigating. Would there be a more fundamental, we could both comment on this, but as I said, kernel methods are fundamentally related to nearest mm. neighbor and deep learning methods are fundamentally related to perturbing or mutating examples from one place to another place. So could we just modify deep learning to be a little bit more like this nearest neighbor approach? Well, Is we, that a naive thing to say? We, if you think about a deep learning model as a kind of distance function, you absolutely can. In fact, you can calculate exactly the kernel that a deep learning model would generate. Like you can do kernelized deep learning. In practice, it doesn't work very well because of the memory constraints. But like, we're not talking about completely separate things here. We're just looking at the, the same problem in different ways. One of the one of the big advantages with deep learning, of course, is that we can do this mini batching. We can put in we can subsample our data and put in little chunks at a time, as opposed to having to hold it all in memory. But just on on that, sorry to labour the point a little bit, yeah. and uh, I'm sure you you can put some flavour on this. But last week we spoke to Facebook Research and yeah. they were talking about this um, new unsupervised clustering representation learning algorithm, and it, it wasn't directly looking at the distance between things, it was doing it indirectly. And I think that's what deep learning does, learns features, and, and actually indirectly it's learning to group similar things together, especially semantically similar things. But you're not directly looking at the distance between examples and you're cursoring through the data yeah. set. Yeah, um, thinking it really comes back to primal dual, linear regression. One is looking at the covariance between your predictors, the other is looking at the covariance between your observations. And it's just, which side of the matrix do you regress on? How, I, I guess that's how I view this divide between the deep learning and kernel methods. It, it's not that it's so much a divide, it's just one's a more efficient way of doing one thing and the other's more efficient way of doing the other. Final thoughts. My question to you, Alex, is uh, we've been talking a lot about what I would say are statistical approaches for doing clever pattern recognition and so on. Yeah, and it it seems a little bit divorced from intelligence, right? Yeah, yeah. I I think I I think talking about intelligence, like a lot of AI, a lot of artificial intelligence, is just marketing speak. Fundamentally, what we're doing at the moment is statistics. We're doing very clever statistics, but it's not intelligence. But labeling intelligence itself is a very difficult problem, and uh, we've discussed in the past talking about putting a number on intelligence. But I think that's even the wrong approach. I think the better approach is to treat intelligence like you know, the definition of pornography. That is, I'll know it when I see it. <laughs> Mr. Lightspeed Kilcher. I'm no longer Lightspeed. That's the... No, you are. <laughs> you warp, warp speed 10. If you've demonstrated it, then it's not something you lose. I see, I see. Yeah, I, I have nothing to say except I, I really enjoyed this. I think this, this is tremendous. The, the I don't know, I've, I've learned like, because, because 
I think for all of us that happens and for many people that listen, as I said at the beginning, we've heard all of these things at some point. And then at some point you have a homework and it's like here, show representer and you do something. Okay. <laughs> you look at the Wikipedia and the solutions and you're trying to get the points. But yeah, I, I find this very exciting, especially that this final connection that kind of the, the data points are the model and our recognition now that we've gone away from this. We've gone to neural networks, which we fed through data and we're like, ha, we have this parametric thing right here. We don't, we can throw away the data points to, to, to the transformers where we know we can't just increase the parameters. We also need to increase the data, which to me is the same thing, even though it ends up being, you can maybe evaluate quicker because you can just forward pass, but it's, I just I, I feel like there's a, a kind of a reconnection in in that space happening definitely and and I'm excited to see what happens in the future. So yeah, Alex, th this this was great. Thank you very much. That was an absolute pleasure doing this. It was same awesome. same from from me, Alex. I, I've learned so much today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. The thing is though, I'm going to let you into a little secret. Alex, we, we've already done two other shows that we haven't put them out there yet. So we had a, a session with Keith last night and, and we had a, a preamble session a few weeks ago. And I, I think Alex is a great guy and, and I, he's going to he's going to be coming on the show a little bit more often. So it's been a real pleasure to have you on, Alex. I, I enjoyed just being able to ask any dumb question because I often feel like people maybe listening to something like this, they'll have some dumb question. And then I feel like I have the same like idiot, like the same question. Wait a minute. Is this like this other thing? And then it was very relaxing to just be able to to ask that. Whereas in a lecture or even in a video lecture, or even in a real lecture, if there's 400 people there, you wouldn't be like, I'm sorry. What again is the square symbol? <laughs> oh, this is literally how I learned maths, just being like uh, my background's in the military. I've learned a foreign language. I learned that very quickly that you've just got to not be afraid to look like an idiot sometimes. And yeah. so at university, I'd always be the guy being like, hang on, you know, what's this? And they'd be like, oh, that's an eigenvalue. And I'd be like, ah, eigenvalue, <laughs> you know, look that up later. And yeah. that's the only, it's the only way I got good. Nice. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks so much, guys. Take care, guys. See you later. Peace out. See you soon. Bye.